Father, if we don't see you in your word this morning, we will leave here the same way we came in. And we are not satisfied with that. We need to see you. We need to see your glory in your word in order to be changed. And so, Lord, as we come to your word, would you change us? And would we leave here reflecting the image of Christ in a greater way than when we came? We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. What happens to your faith when the world around you begins to erode? When you're watching the evening news and you see the moral decline in our world, or, or when you're getting ready to send your children to school and you understand the, the violence that has been taken place there, the, this fear that you have to send your children to school or as children to go to school, when there is conflict and disagreement and erosion in your closest relationships, when the world around you begins to erode, what happens to your faith? How can your faith remain strong in times of trouble that you are often walking through? This vision in Daniel chapter 8 teaches us a valuable lesson about how our faith can survive in the discouraging times and even in the devastating situations that we often find ourselves in. And this vision is meant to strengthen the faith of those it was given to. And it strengthens the faith of those it was given to by setting before the people the glory of God. By setting before the people the glory of God's knowledge and His power. And so as we approach this vision this morning... Our aim is that our faith would be strengthened as we too behold the knowledge and power of God. Now before we deal with the vision itself, let's consider a little bit the situation that Israel found themselves in, for this is who the vision was given to. Israel at this time was a troubled people living in a troubling time. Now, uh, some weeks ago, I spoke on Daniel chapter 5 and said that Israel at the time was dealing with worshiping idols, right? We talked about that, and, and that's true, but there was also this portion of Israel that was in exile in Babylon that was seeking to be faithful to God. And so we need to look at this text through the eyes of those faithful Israelites who are striving to live in obedience to God. What is this text saying to them? Now let's recall their situation for a moment. They had been taken from the land that God had promised to give them as an inheritance forever, the promised land. They had been exiled from this land and made to live in Babylon. Not only this, the, the throne that God said would always be occupied in his covenant to David is no longer occupied at this point. His people have been exiled, nobody is ruling in Israel, and his people are being ruled by pagan kings. On top of all of this, they are in the midst of a pagan culture that is anti the God that they serve, and in many ways anti them for serving this God. From all outward appearances, things are not going so well for God's people. 
I can't help but think some of the things might be running through their mind as they find themselves in this situation. God, do you see what's going on here? Are you still with us? God, are you still for us? You know, their situation is not much different from the one we find ourselves in each and every day. Have we been uprooted from our home and transplanted in a completely new, proudly anti-God culture? Well, no, not exactly. But over the course of time, have we not seen the culture around us become increasingly pagan? There continues to grow a belief that there is no universal truth. That truth is whatever you make it. You can believe something and I can believe the exact opposite, but it's all relative, it doesn't matter. This cuts at the very heart of who God is because God is the God of all truth. You see, the world around us holds that there is no universal truth that ought to reign over all people. Not only this, there's been a push from the scientific community in America specifically to remove God as a necessary part of our lives. And as has been documented over and over and over again, there has been a radical decline in the Bible's influence on gender, sexuality, and marriage in the world around us. What does it do to your faith when day after day, You go to school, day after day you go to work, you go into the local marketplace and you see the erosion of the culture around you. Now not only do we see cultural erosion, but we also see personal erosion as well. What happens to your faith after you have another screaming match with your spouse? What happens to your faith when one of your closest friends texts you and says that they're no longer a Christian? What happens to your faith when one of your family members goes through a heart-wrenching divorce? What happens to your faith when your children are not following God, they're rejecting Christ and not walking in His ways? What happens to your faith? Is your reaction to doubt God? Do you think, God, are are you really in control of all of this? This erosion that's all around me? God, are you seeing what's going on in my life and in my circumstances? God, are you hearing me? Are you, God, are you even there? Upon seeing the erosion of the world around us, do we begin to lose faith in God? Because our faith is often weak, we often allow the world around us to bring us to a place of despair. And I can't help but believe that this might just be where Israel found themselves, in a very similar situation, perhaps questioning or doubting that God was still for them. And it's upon this setting that this vision in Daniel chapter 8 would have come to the ears of God's people and also comes to us. So let us now consider the vision and what God is seeking to tell us through it. So we have a vision for a troubled people. And the vision encompasses the entirety of Daniel 8 and the interpretation is the second half of it, which is what we will be looking at in this vision 
we see a ram, a goat, and a bold-faced king. Now, there's something good about preaching on Daniel chapter 8, and it is this, that with all of the different interpretations and controversies about what things mean in Daniel, scholars are pretty well on the same track when it comes to Daniel chapter 8 and what these things mean and where they found their fulfillment. And that's a great help to me as I present this, but also for us as we think through it together. So let's begin. In verse 20, we begin with a ram with two horns. The text says, and the angel says as he's giving the interpretation, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Now what's being prophesied here is that in the future what's going to happen is the Babylonian empire that is currently reigning at the time of this vision is going to be conquered by the Medo-Persian empire. That's what's being talked about here as God is looking into the future and seeing what will happen. The Medo-Persian empire is going to conquer the Babylonian empire. Verse 21, we then see a goat, a great horn, and four other horns. Verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So in the course of human history, the fulfillment of this comes after the Medo-Persian Empire takes over the Babylonian Empire. They rule for a number of years, and then this king of Greece rises up, who we believe to be Alexander the Great. He comes and he conquers the Medo-Persian Empire, being this great horn that is on this goat that represents Greece. But then Alexander dies. This great horn is broken. And in the course of history, what we see happen is that four of his generals rise up and essentially divide up what his reign was, divide up the areas into four different kingdoms, as we see here in the text. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose. We see this taking place in the course of human history. This vision encompasses about a 400-year period of time. So we see Babylon being conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. And then we see Alexander the Great rise up and conquer the Medo-Persian Empire. And then we see him die. And we see his four generals assume control of what was his reign. And then as we continue on in verse 23, we're introduced to an evil, ominous king that is said to rise up out of one of those kingdoms from Alexander's reign. Verse 23 says this, At the latter end of their kingdom, that is those four generals, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. 
Now again, scholars are rather unanimous on who fits the bill for this fulfillment. And it is King Antiochus IV who rises up out of one of those generals ruling, rises up to power. And as we see in the text and in the course of history, he is greatly opposed to God himself and to God's people. He is an evil king and a fierce persecutor of God. We see that here in the text when it says that he shall destroy many mighty men and the people who are the saints. History records for us the persecutions of this king. He sought to completely eradicate the Jewish culture. He was trying to Hellenize the world at the time. And so what he sought to do with the Jews who are seeking to obey God's laws was he forced them to no longer keep the law of God. He sought to keep them from circumcising their boys on the eighth day per the law of God. He would not allow them to observe the Sabbath. They had to treat Saturday like every other day of the week. He forced them to sacrifice pigs on the altar and even went and ransacked the temple in Jerusalem and sets up an idol in the temple that was meant to worship the one true God. And if any of the Jews resisted what King Antiochus was seeking to do, he would slaughter them. And history tells the tale of tens of thousands of God's people being destroyed at the hand of this king. Now we see as the text continues on in verse 25 that King Antiochus will meet his end. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken. But by no human hand. So we see God give his people. His troubled people living in a troubling time. A vision that spans the course of about 400 years. Now, ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, why is God giving this vision to his people? Is he just telling them this so they can say, oh, that's really cool. That doesn't do anything for my life right now, but that's really cool. No, you see, God is giving this vision to his people, not just for information, but to affect them in some way. And we must determine how God is seeking to affect his people through this vision. I believe that God is seeking to affect his people by setting before them a picture of his omniscience and his omnipotence, his full and complete knowledge and his infinite power. And the first thing we see here is the glory of God's knowledge displayed through his foretelling the future. You know, it comes to pass in such a way that scholars seek to, uh, critical scholars, I'll say, they'll say, this, this prophecy is so accurate about this 400-year time frame that it could not have been written before it happened. And so they say Daniel was probably written in like the, the first century B.C. or something like that after these events had already happened because nobody can do this. Well, God can do this. 
If God knows all things, can he not know the future? You see, in God foretelling the future, we see the glory of his omniscience put on display. And the foretelling of the future actually begins to come true in the lifetime of the people who received the vision. Look back at Daniel 8 verse 1. Daniel gives us a time frame for when he received this vision. He says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Now we've seen this King Belshazzar before, have we not? Yeah, he had that idolatrous feast in Daniel chapter 5, which he was then killed for. And who takes over his kingdom when he's killed? Daniel 5, 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom. This was the fall of the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire when Darius takes over. In the lifetime of Daniel, we actually begin to see this vision come to pass. We begin to see the fulfillment of it. When you read this vision and you see how God has charted and mapped out the future, do you get a sense of the greatness of His knowledge? How vast and how immeasurable it is? Psalms 147.5 says this, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Another way to translate this is, is His knowledge is infinite. What does it mean for God's knowledge to be infinite? I think about this in our own human weaknesses in our mind compared to the way it is with God. Think with me through a few of these. The human mind is constantly learning new things. New things are always coming into the mind of God that were, or the mind of man that were not previously there. But it is not so with the mind of God. There has never been a single moment that something came into the mind of God that He did not already know. Secondly, the human mind is only able to think about a few things at a time. And let's be honest, if you're a guy in here, maybe only one or two things, right? It's not so with the mind of God. All things that can be known are always and immediately before God's mind and accessible to Him. You know how we as humans often struggle to remember things that we knew at one point? Like I think about like I left my keys somewhere and I can't remember where I put them. And so I have to go through these mental steps to get back to remembering where I placed my keys, right? So, okay, I remember I was playing outside with the boys. I was sitting at the table, but I don't remember them there, okay? I remember uh, that I was in the living room, and I sat there for a little bit. No, I don't remember them there. But I remember I was down in the basement, and I think I left my keys on, on the couch down there. And I go down there, and there are my keys, right? We have to take time to like mentally retrace our steps to access this knowledge that we need. But it's not so with the mind of God. Everything that can possibly be known is always before Him. It's not like He needs to access some part of His understanding and He's got to go back in the corridors of His mind. 
That's not the way it is with God. Thirdly, the human mind is often confused. But it is not so with the mind of God. Never is there a single hint of confusion in the mind of God. He knows all things fully, completely, exhaustively, and without confusion. Is God's omniscience not a glorious truth? Indeed, it is a glorious truth, but by itself, it is not comforting. If God is only omniscient, if He only knows all things, including the future, but does not have the power or ability to control what He knows, it's not comforting. But we see this vision in Daniel show us not only that God knows the future, but that He is fully in control of the future. And in this, we see the glory of God's power put on display. And the glory of God's power put on display in this vision is shown to us through God setting up kings and kingdoms and tearing them down at will. And this comes to us when we see this great evil king, King Antiochus, and how he meets his end. Look again at verse 25, the second half. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He shall rise up against God himself. But he shall be broken. But by no human hand. No no human is going to kill this king. God is going to dispose of him. God is going to break him. And in this we see that God is not just passively seeing the future and what's going to happen, but He is actively involved in the way it's going to come about and what is going to happen in the future. Job 42.2 speaks of God's great power. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Anything that God determines and purposes to do cannot be undone. Puritan author Stephen Charnock speaks about the omnipotence of God. He says, God is not omnipotent unless His power is infinite. For a finite power is a limited power, and a limited power cannot affect everything that is possible. Nothing can be too difficult for the divine power to bring about. He has a fullness of power and exceeding strength above all human capacities. That which he acts is above the power of any creature to act. The greatness of his power has no end. It is a vanity to imagine any limits can be given to it. No creature ever had nor ever can have that strength of understanding to conceive the extent of his power and how magnificently he can work. God not only is all-knowing, but he is all-powerful. He not only knows all things, but he controls all things. Imagine what this display of God's knowledge and power would have done to the faith of His people. 
The fact that God knew the future and was in control of it would have strengthened the faith of his people in their seemingly devastating circumstance. How so? Well, if God knows and controls the future, certainly he knows and controls the present. And we have the unique ability and privilege to be standing on the other side of the complete fulfillment of this vision in Daniel chapter 8. How much more should that strengthen our faith to see the complete fulfillment of it having already taken place? To know that God was faithful to His Word. Now seeing the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 8 Standing on the other side of it is a great help to our faith when we see the erosion of the world all around us. But it is not the greatest help to our faith. There is a greater fulfillment that has been revealed to us that must be the anchor of our faith. And the fulfillment is of God's promise to send Jesus. In this text and in the entirety of the Old Testament, there is a pattern that continually reveals itself to us. And the pattern is that evil rulers and kingdoms will rise up against God and His people and God will tear them down. This is the pattern that we see all throughout the Old Testament and here in this text. King Antiochus is going to rise up and God is going to break him down and destroy him. And Jesus is the complete fulfillment of this pattern that we see in Scripture. For he fulfills this pattern in an ultimate sense. God in his infinite knowledge and power planned, promised, and prophesied that he would send his son to conquer our greatest enemy and so He has. Now this is true. God has sent His Son and He has conquered our greatest enemy and we stand on the other side of the fulfillment of that. But how is this a greater anchor for our soul than seeing the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 8? How is a greater comfort to us Well, it is greater because it secures the greatest promise for a troubled people living in a troubling time. And the promise is found in Romans 8.28. There, Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, really, all things All of this erosion, personal and cultural erosion that is around me, this circumstance that I find myself in, all things work together for good. I don't think my faith can ascend to those heights to believe that. If you're thinking that, why do you doubt? We've already seen that God has the knowledge and the power. We've already seen that God has the ability to work all things together for the good of those who love Him. So what's left to doubt? There's only one thing left to doubt. God may have the ability, but is He willing to use His power and His knowledge to work all things together for the good of those who love Him? Is He willing 
to do it. Just a couple verses later in Romans, Paul gives us the answer to that. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If you struggle to believe that God is able or wants to work all things together for the good of those who love Him, will you rest your faith on the truth of this text? The proof that God can and will work all things together for the good of those who love Him is in the fact that He's already given up His Son for us. He's given His most prized possession. He's already done the most difficult thing in giving His own Son. And we stand on the other side of the fulfillment of that event. And it stands to us and speaks to us that it is proof that God is not only able to work all things together for our good, but that He is indeed willing to do so and does so. Church, if we are going to live joyful, peaceful, intentional, and obedient lives in the times of trouble we find ourselves in, we must get a sense of how great our God is. And we get a sense of how great our God is by looking at Jesus and what God has accomplished through him. We must believe that the giving of his son was the proof that God is for his people. Even if it doesn't look like it in our current situation. But he indeed is working all things together for the good of those who love him and the glory of his name. And if we rest our faith upon Christ and what he has accomplished for us in securing this greatest of all promises, he will give us the strength we need to walk faithfully through the times of trouble we find ourselves in. It is upon believing the gospel more and more, the promises of God given to us in Jesus Christ, that we are able to live joyful, peaceful, intentional, and obedient lives given all the cultural erosion that is happening around us. So let us leave this place having a greater sense of how great our God is and having rested our faith upon Christ and this glorious promise that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. Pray with me. Father, thank You for Daniel chapter 8. Thank you for leaving us with a beautiful and glorious picture of who you are, of your great power and your great knowledge, and oh Lord, how willing you are to use those things for our good. Lord, give those of us here who have weak faith the ability to rest upon Christ and the promise that he is secured for us by his blood. And may this promise 
encourage and strengthen us as we leave this place and go out into the world that we might live faithful and obedient lives to you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.